out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's not beat around any old bush. This week is going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, musician, etc., etc. It is Nigel Clark of Dodgy Fame, the band that is, um, as well as uh, talking about his solo work and much, much more. So, this is the interview. So, Without any more further ado, um, we get right down to it. Indeed we do. Right, so after several minutes of casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, it's very exciting that bit gets edited out, we got down to that um, subject that was the early formative years. Nigel, did your parents shape the person you are musically? Anyway, over to you, Nigel. It definitely wasn't my parents. They weren't really musical at all. My grandparents were musical, but I didn't relate to Birmingham. I think my sort of moment was probably, I think my moment, like a lot of people my age, in, I was born in 66, was punk. Right. So punk was like, to me, was like the do-it-yourself, you know, it was, it felt that like it was like people like me that were in control of punk or something, you know, yes. rather than, rather than, you know, it being like, you know, I don't know. It, you know what I'm saying there. I, it felt more working class than anything else. Yeah. And I felt that that was partly, that's, that, that was the sort of voice that I got onto and, and cling, cling to. So Joe Strummer and Malcolm Owen from The Roots and, you know, Crass, Steve Ignorant, Penny Rimbaud, Jello Biafra. The list is endless of my heroes. Polystyrene, the greatest female singer to have walked the world in my world. <laughs> you know, at that time, you know, but then... all of that. I, Stiff Little Fingers, Jake Burns, you know. Yes. But when you when you were ten, that was nineteen seventy six, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So so when when did you? So obviously you this this kind of came along more in the eighties, unless you were incredibly hip to the trip, and was playing punk in the age of when you hit double figures. I was playing punk at eleven. Why? I was yeah. I was I, I was a footballer, and then I remember the Silver Jubilee in nineteen seventy seven in July, and you know, going, what is all this rubbish <laughs> at 11 years old and going, and, you know, thinking that I was, I had more to do. And I was buying the first punk magazines. I had a blazer that I chalked on, you know, stuff like that. So I was quite precocious and quite grown up for, I suppose, you know, for 11. And yeah, I was a punk from them, really. Blimey, I'm so impressed because now I'm really embarrassed because I'm I'm two years older and, and frankly, punk didn't happen until the 80s. But then I come from... I think- Yes, I come from Norfolk, so any... I'm the youngest in my family, so I grew up with, like, Led Zeppelin, because Led Zeppelin are from my hometown, or John Bonham was. So he was friends with my next-door neighbour. So I had that, I knew about Led Zeppelin, and my brother and sister, who were, like, my brother's five years older than me. But punk, to me, was, like, my own, because they were into Black Sabbath and heavy rock and all that. Yeah. And punk to me. But we were very, me and my sister and brother were very musical, you know. As soon as my parents came, went out shopping, the stereo was on very loud and we'd dance around the lounge, you know. Yes, absolutely. Because, I, I mean, it's interesting because did you say you're the youngest? Yeah. Because I'm the youngest of three. And my older brother, who I worship, was seven years older, but he was really into prog rock. And I 
followed him religiously because I thought he was amazing. So, but he did have Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, but it was mostly, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. Yes. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> so it wasn't until the 80s that things started to develop. So when did you, when you left school, did you go into work or college or go into... No, I think I sort of, I, 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 even when I was at school, I worked for an independent record store. So I was sort of, uh, I was madly into records, even like as I, you know, I was 11. And then by, by 12, 13, I was going to Birmingham on the train and buying records. I was mad about music. And then I got, we had a local sh uh, shop startup in our town. It was the first ever record shop we'd had. And I was there the person that was there the first, you know, at the door when it opened. <laughs> and I looked around and I said, there's no music in here. And they were like, yeah, we haven't got our record player yet. And I said, well, you can borrow mine. So I, they said, okay. So I took my record player up and then they gave me a job and I was 14. <laughs> so yeah, so I was working in the coolest record shop in town and I was 14 years old and it was brilliant. So, and then I did that for a year and then like, you know, and I was really lucky. And then obviously that closed, unfortunately. And then, I, saw, I, I suppose music became, as I left school, you know, girls, jobs, cars, those sort of things. It sounds like a prefab sprout song. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I think my life was like a prefab sprout song at that time. And, you know, and it's sort of those sort of things take over. And I think I got, you know, I did that. And then I sort of reinvented myself when I was about 19, 18, 19, when I just wanted to be a singer in a band. So that was it. Yes. And when, did, when did you discover your voice, though? Because it's quite a big thing. It's one thing being a bass player in the back, being a bit weird and moody, but there's something else about being a singer, which is quite revealing, isn't it? And some people, mm. I was in the choir and I did sing in there, so it wasn't such a big thing. But some people, it was quite a big thing. And people like me were told when we were very young, you can't sing, for God's sake, just stand at the back during the Christmas carols and mm. <laughs> emotionally you know emotionally destroyed I never had that I was quite fortunate I was quite fortunate in the sense that I never went to choir <laughs> and I I think my I, I think I realized I had I could sing I don't know I always used to sing along with my records I played guitar when I was a kid and when I started playing guitar I learned to sing I started playing songs I wrote songs I was from my first song was I hate school so I always wrote about what was around me uh, I was a vegetarian at 13. I was like, you know, because I was, I was a crass fan and I was into anarcho-punk. I understood about politics. I understood about lots of things to a degree, you know. Yeah. So I was probably quite annoying as a 13, 14-year-old. But I did my own thing. I stayed in my bedroom. I am a classic story of a lot of my friends uh, went into crime and all that sort of stuff when I was <laughs> at school. And I just stayed at home and played my guitar. They all oh. went to Boston and I was on my own, you know, so kind of used to it. That's more of a Bruce Springsteen song now, isn't it, really? It's more of change from Prefab Sprout to Bruce Springsteen, yeah. <laughs> I suppose so, yes. Well, I, I listened to a song by Bruce Springsteen, but there was Streets of Fire, that was the one. Right, there's Atlantic City as well, which is quite a nice I love one. Atlantic City, that's mm -hmm. my favourite Bruce Springsteen song. I play that one. That's Nebraska, isn't it? It's Nebraska, it's a classic. Everything about classic. that song is just beautiful. It starts... Almost with the, you know, it's kind of unusual because I think it starts on the vocal, doesn't it? Almost it's like... Well, they blew up a chicken man mm. in Philly last night. Oh, I love it. 
God, you know, poetry really, isn't it? Anyway, so so during the 80s, because because obviously this is my sort of period, I suppose. So 83 to 87 was the indie pop years. Basically, it was the years of the Smiths. And there was definitely, you know, you'd had a few bands before. You'd had post-punk, and then you had those few. And then the Smiths came, and it was like, wow, that's amazing. Then Ecstasy come, the Smiths break up, and there's definitely a different scene. And as you know, later on, um, you know, bands have a moment, don't they? And the kids were there, and then that moment slightly goes, and then you have to work out what to do next. So, so during the eighties, were you had you gone from Crass to Red Wedge at all, and and sort of the Redskins and and that? Uh, you know what? I saw, like I said, I'd had such a sort of um, I don't know a trajectory when I was younger in music. I'd worked in a record shop. I'd done all those things. When I got when I left school in eighty three. I was, I was sort of like, I'd been playing in a punk band and deciding what I wanted to do. I was a kind of playing bass. We had a singer, but he wasn't very good. So I thought I could do the singing better. And then I sort of, I met a girl and then I got a job and I worked in a factory at Rover in Longbridge in Birmingham. And I bought a house at 19. So I did everything very young. I sold a house at 21 and moved to London. I'd made myself some money and, you know, sort of went, but, but I knew at 21, I'd already had a mortgage. I'd already had a job, a, a permanent job, a job for life, as they say, or they used to say, and I had nothing to lose. And I just thought the only thing that I was going to lose was the fact that I thought I might be able to make it music as some wild dream, as we do. And I just went, I'm not going to stick around here. I'm going to go to London. So I moved to London. Right, blimey, that, that was almost sounding like The River by Bruce Springsteen for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's your life in Bruce Springsteen songs here, isn't it? Because in 87, I think it's 87, we had the hurricane and the, and the kind of financial, right. the, the financial crash. So you yeah. managed to do that before the, that period then? So I know, so I, was, I, had a, I had a mortgage in 85, so 85 I probably got bought my house and then realised by 87, I remember the crash, the, the, the storm anyway, because I worked at Rover and I was a buyer or a material controller. And I remember all my car, we had loads of cars on the production line that didn't have sun visors because the van had blown over on the motorway. So I remember things <laughs> like that. And then, and I knew I could, the thing was, I think it was, I just had a bit of self-belief. I thought if I could do a job like that, then possibly I could do what I, anything. Do you know what I mean? I just felt like that. And I suppose people do when they're younger. I don't know. I, I thought I could do something that I wanted to do. My parents thought I was crazy. I went against pretty much everyone. Brother and sister thought I was crazy. And in fact, I would think my son would be crazy if he did it. But you've got to do these things, haven't you? I couldn't look back. I don't know. I don't know any other way now. Yeah, but it was absolutely. helpful. It was it was helpful to know both sides of the coin in a way that I was turning something over, knowing what was expected of me: mortgage, girlfriend, babies. Do you know what I mean? Summer holidays in Benidorm, or do something really crazy like go to London and try and make it as a a singer or a songwriter. You know, do something you wanted to do. Blimey, that 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 is that is belief, isn't it? That is absolutely hundred percent. You, you I know. think so. I think it's, so. it, it's like going to a Tony Robbins kind of weekend, isn't it? <laughs> Unleash the it power. Does, <laughs> it does feel like quite unique. It does feel like unique to me. I don't, I mean, obviously there's thousands of other people. And when I got to London, yeah, there was thousands of other people who had joined bands, who'd moved down from the north and who tried, wanted to make it as well. So I wasn't isolated. And I found, 
I found quite a lot of people that, you know, I immediately get on with people who are creative, who are, who talk that language. Yes. You know, now especially, I love talking to other singers. That's why it's great with me and Chris, because we understand the, the, the blank page, the, the three chords that they've got, the unfinished songs, you know, and it's like, we understand that, you know, not many people understand that sort of, that way of life, really. No, absolutely. Because it's an interesting time because a lot of those indie bands, the C86 bands, they just about had enough of it because they were on their second or third album. So they, you know, it was a lack of money. They hated each other. And then the music scene changed. You know, Ecstasy came along. So suddenly it was like kind of, we want the next Stone Roses or Happy Mondays and the Soup Dragons, Primal Scream. And then, you know, so that sort of wiped out those bands. And then that was a bit of a scene. And then you had the Seattle scene. So you were there in a really interesting and awkward time, really, weren't you? We were there. In, we moved to London at the sort of... I moved to London in 88. So it was a sort of... Um, yeah, it was techno. Acid House was just about to start. It was like the start of... I think that summer, 88, was the first summer of love. Yes. Um, so... But we weren't D. We weren't me and Matthew were kind of DJs at the time, but not that sort of DJs. <laughs> we weren't techno DJs. We were DJs playing like our favourite songs from the eighties and seventies and sixties onwards. But yeah, it was a weird time because there wasn't much going on, if I remember rightly. And we moved to London, and it was pay-to-play gigs. You know, it was really difficult to get noticed. And of course, it was. You know, it always is going to be. I mean, it was. It was true that it wasn't paved with gold. And, but I do look back and I think, you know, I, I mean, the C86 bands that I sort of, that I knew about, I, was Primal Scream a C86 band? Because yes. I really liked, I mean, I know this is going to be bad, I really liked them before they did Scream Medallica. I wasn't really into Scream Medallica, if I'm honest. I liked Sonic Flower Groove or whatever it was called. I really liked that album. Yes. Thought it was a prop. So I have this sort of thing where, I mean, I can understand and appreciate Primal Scream, Scream Medallica. I, of course I can, and I can see how groundbreaking it was for the time. Andy Weatherall and Patterson and all those people that know can fold who worked on it. But it just wasn't, it just didn't tickle my, but I was more, if I'm honest, at that time, I preferred Nevermind and Bleach. I was more into, you know, that sort of thing, really. But it what didn't show in my music, but... No, absolutely. No, because then there was another little scene that had started to appear. You know, there'd been... My Bloody Valentine, and then that North London scene, like Silverfish and the Faith Healers, and the bit of the shoegazing scene, and then you had Sarah Records appeared, and they were definitely shoegazing with bands like Tallulah Gosh. So there was, there was still, and Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, that suddenly, three years later, was... And Grebo. Grebo. And, and Grebo, yeah. Gay bikers on acid, we love them. And, mm-hmm. the, and all that scene. So there was kind of different little levels. I suppose the music press picked up on the dance rave scene. Then there was, you know, Nevermind. And like you said, in 89, there was Bleach, wasn't there? Which, mm-hmm. which I thought was a brilliant, brilliant album. And I played probably more than Nevermind, actually, because I just thought it was mm-hmm. modern. Because John, were you a kind of a John Peel fan at this stage? Massive John Peel fan. I was a mass. I grew up on John Peel. So I was, I'd stopped listening to John Peel, Peel, um, Oh, I don't know when he. I don't know when he changed. I, I, he, he always changed, and he was brilliant for that. But I think I listened to John Peel till I don't know early eighties, eighty two, something like that. I always, and then I sort of did. I just moved on. I think my life moved on, so I wasn't really. I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? I never really bothered about what everyone else was doing then. Do you know what I mean? I was never, never really sort of 
never really wanted to be part of a scene anyway, because I didn't, I wouldn't know how to be. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, I definitely wasn't a shoegazer because I just thought that there was something that, you know, I did, I did see my bloody Valentine. I saw a lot of the bands, but it was just never for me. It was just like, I didn't, I, I suppose, one thing that put me off music in a way, or put me off was, I wasn't a Jesus and Mary Chain fan. I didn't get it. I had already listened to Discharge and Crass and Noise bands, and I'd grown out of that. Yeah. And then the idea of going back into another noise sort of thing, I just felt a little bit old for it, which is weird. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I mean, it's quite bizarre, really. I don't know how I'm coming across because I seem quite <laughs> autistic in my music taste. It, I grew up really quickly, I think. Yes. So when bands like Sonic Youth came along and Huskadoo, were they, did they sort of come into your radar or was that also? Huskadoo did, Sonic Youth, not really. I, I mean, I listen to them now or I, or I sort of, when I hear them now, yeah, I like the Pixies. I like, I like the Pixies. I mean, bands that I liked. When, so when I moved to London, I basically went on a musical education of everything from the 1960s. I just went back and I and we we would watch Woodstock. We got into Slimer, Family Stone, The Who, all those bands, Jimi Hendrix, because we'd never heard them. I'd never, mm. you, know, you know, they were. So I think rather we we were or we were more interested in the culture and our our culture as a country of having like the small faces that I saw were like you know there was a lineage from the small faces in the sixties. To the not to what was early nineties, I saw that. I think we saw that, and the Who we were massive fans of the Who, to you know Quadrophenia and stuff like that. So in some ways, we sort of went backwards, which is quite weird, and weren't really involved in what was going on around us. Obviously, the Stone Roses album came out, and you know, as a band, I mean, I think that first album is is amazing. And I don't think they ever got near it again at all. But that first album was amazing. So that was a big influence. But it wasn't an influence in the sense it was it was more of like, yes, they're doing the same thing that we're doing. They're listening to Simon and Garfunkel and stuff <laughs> like that and yeah. applying it to new and new as I don't know. You know what I mean? That's it. Well, yes, it's interesting because basically the that that period that you're talking about with the kinks and the small faces and and I put the moody blues in there, were creating these kind of the template to what then just basically we do next, don't we really? Let's face it. Mm -hmm. You can't yeah. you can't listen to the Sex Pistols with occasionally thinking they're basically like the monkeys mixed with the Stooges, aren't they? Let's face it, you know. It's really funny, isn't it, <laughs> that you never knew. That. I mean, it was like when I first, I loved the Stranglers as a kid and then I got into the doors and went, <laughs> okay, you know what I mean? And it felt like, I was, it felt like I was educating myself in music and listening to what was going on. I must admit, I wasn't, wasn't great at listening to things that went on, but there was, a, you know, there was such a lot out there in the early 90s. I'm trying to think what I was into. We used to run a club, we used to run the Dodgy Club. So we were really into the Beastie Boys. Um, we were really into Neil Young. We just opened up, we were really into like sort of, so there was the current music and then the music that we listened to. Um, and that was a dodgy club. That was our repertoire. That's what we used to play as DJs. It was just like a mixture of, you know, the Beastie Boys to the Beach Boys, Dave Kennedy's to Delight or De La Soul. So it was a mix of hip hop, mix of folk, mix of punk, mix of rock, you know, yes. Hendrix. We were massive Hendrix fans. 
Did you start going around the kind of the globe in the sense of going through the, the West Coast American sounds with people like Spirit and, and those kind of Randy California thinking, God, this guy's got an amazing sound? To, to a point, I think I'm still doing that. I think I don't, you don't stop doing that. I think we did. We got the loving spoonful. You know, we did get into a San Francisco. I, I really, I found the Pretty Things and really got into a couple of Pretty Things album albums. Then Matthew's dad went traveling around the world and would send us Indian tabla tapes. And so I started sampling Indian Indian instruments and stuff like that, which I really, you know, got into. I, I, I sort of, yeah, I've never turned my ears down to something, but I think I have got a pop ear. I've just, I... Even though I listen to the, I love Dead Kennedys. I mean, the Dead Kennedys sound pop to me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's because they've got catchy songs. It's not, I, I, I like that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, I find it difficult if someone makes it difficult for me to like it. And I don't think people generally go out to make something difficult for me to like. It's just the way that they make their music, you know? I think and you it's, have your taste. Yeah. But I've been listening to a lot of that kind of New York punk scene from the late 70s and early 80s. And there's a bit of a jazz thing going on, which makes it really, it's not very comfortable, really. But I, I'm sort of persevering with it at the moment because it's kind who of like, to, pardon? Who, who, what sort of bands? Because I mean, I love television and Marky Moon. So I suppose like it was, there was, a, there was a compilation that Brian Eno put together. I think it was on Z Records and it had these bands like Bush, Tetris and James chance and the contour oh, james chance and all these kind of really and there's a guy called john lowry as well who's a cool jazz guy and there was there was a, yeah and there was people like the rock cats who were kind of a bit more of a rockabilly band and so there was there was that kind of very it was quite awkward but very sort of edgy you know and there was a there was a band called art you know which, which was a sort of all-female band as well so you know it was it was interesting what they were doing because obviously new york at that stage was kind of a derelict mess and there was just like mm -hmm. these kind of slums that you know out of came out you know with CBGB's and the Mud Club and and Max's Kansas City so there was all this and it was it was flooded with heroin as well so all these people like the New York Dolls and Johnny Thunders were all wrecked weren't they you know yeah 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 I agree beautifully dead you know beautifully dead yeah exactly I, I sort of know some of that and I know the I know that sort of like they rip up the rule book of music and what should be done, like Perubu and people like that, which I quite, which I quite like. I can, and I get it now. I probably wouldn't have got it at the time, but I understand it now, years later. But I mean, I was going to say then, you just reminded me, one of the bands that really influenced me was before I moved, when I was 21, I travelled around America with a couple of mates and we just, I left my job and I just went and I really got into R.E.M., so I think they'd just released Document Album. And when I was around there, I was listening to a lot of K-Rock radio and in the car driving around. And we were just sleeping on beaches. But R.E.M. became one of my sort of go-to bands at the time. And I, I kind of put them up there with The Clash. They were very inspiring to me. I love their sound. I love the fact that it was a bit jangly. They had harmony. I loved harmony. Yes. I love that Peter Buck harmony. I think it's great. Or, or the other guy, I can't remember what his name is. They, they always sang like a two-part harmony. I loved it. Yes. Big well, influence. Radio Free Europe was a, was a classic. And was it Garden? Brilliant. Right. You know, so, um, yeah, Georgia, Atlanta. It was all, mm. wasn't it, there? Anyway, so, so then when did you all, when did you suddenly feel that the band had formed? Because obviously you were playing in different combos, doing different bits and pieces. I suppose, well, we went down, we moved down to London with a, 
me, Matthew, and a guy called Dave, who was originally going to be our guitarist. But I think we had quite uh, different. At the time, we didn't. We did. We had well. We thought we could make it work, but we had quite different musical backgrounds. Or in, we would we were listening to different stuff. He was quite into the goth stuff and all that. And again, I was like, I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in like you know Pete Townsend and you know and stuff like that. And he was into goth stuff and shoegaze. And I just didn't think it was going to work. Yes. Whereas Matthew was kind of in on the same tip as me, a bit more poppy. And so we got rid of Dave. We sort of we sent him on his way, and then we had to audition for a guitarist, and that's you know how we found Andy. Yes, and then did you feel like the classic three piece, like Jimi Hendrix? Do you think in this? Um, well, we did yeah. actually, in a way, because we all we all we all lived together, so it was like the job for guitarist was like a living job, like a housekeeper. <laughs> so he moved in, and we already I built a studio in the garage. We lived in Hounslow. And I built a studio in like a single garage. I just like done it with pallets. I'm quite handy like that. So I built a studio so we could rehearse five hours a day. And we did that and we just rehearsed and then I got them singing. And then, yeah, it was, it was really good fun. It was like, you know, it felt real. And the only way we were gonna do it if it was real. So when we used to go on stage and do gigs in late 89, 90, we might only play for 25 minutes because that's all the songs we had, but we were pretty, pretty tight, you know? Yes. We, were, we really knew what we were doing because we'd spent all that time doing it. And there was, there was no, there was nothing else to do. It was like, you know, apart from watching Neighbours or playing this, this Super Mario or something like that, there was, and listening to music, there was nothing else to do. So we just rehearse and play songs and write songs yes. all the time. Because that happened a little bit in the early 80s when there was a lot of unemployment. You'd had Thatcher in 79 and a lot of people were doing that Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance Scheme. So they, mm -hmm. they were able to think, well, I'll just sign on, do this scheme for a year. Obviously take a lot of, um, smoke a lot and drink a lot and play some mm -hmm. music. And then hopefully John Peel will give it a play and then we get a John Peel session. And then we'll have that sort of moment where we'll almost get in the van and tour around the country at all these indie nights that you have. So that was, there was kind of the gatekeepers during that period of the, well, I suppose before then, but the, definitely the 80s and into the 90s, there was definitely this music press, John Peel, you know, it was like, and, you know, those indie clubs in every city and every town, mm -hmm. wasn't there? So it did yeah. sort of lend itself to being able to go, blimey, that's the transit, we're going to Norwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there'll be 150 people watching us because they might have heard the single. So, you know, it did help. I think playing live is so important, actually, isn't it? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it was to us at that time. And I mean, I mean, you're, I always feel that you're only as good as your last gig. I always feel that. I've always thought that. I mean, it's like you've got to put a lot into it. And there's, I can't be, you can't be complacent. You can't just think that you're going to be able to do it if you don't practice. It's like, I have to practice a lot. I do. You know, I think, you know, I've met other people and it's like, you have to practice a lot. There's a lot that goes on behind that scenes to get 45 minutes on stage. You imagine, you know, getting a band to do, you know, do a 45 minute set. It's going to take you six months of really hard practicing. Yes. Normally, some people might be able to do it quicker, but not for me. Well, look at, Dave, you know, David Bowie was my first single and my first love. And thankfully that was, you know, for life. And um, 
but his 60s work I mean it's dreadful you know and that was like five six years of some really terrible stuff which we would have totally forgotten if it wasn't for what happens next you know but yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so it's, it's like why were you doing that who was buying this stuff that's what I always yeah. thought you know you had all the other stuff and then you had David Bowie's kind of quirky folky and no one was buying it though were they <laughs> They weren't buying it really. He wouldn't have been famous if it wasn't for what he, you know, Space Odyssey, what he did after. Yes. He wouldn't have been famous or no one would have remembered him at all. No, you know? it would have been a really odd, who's this? And he's, but he's always been quite an odd character. I love Bowie for the sense that like, you know, I remember when we were touring in the 90s and we had a lighting guy who's from Manchester and he was a massive Bowie fan to the point where he even looked, everything, he loved Tin Machine and everything. And Tin Machine were, were, were looked at as like, oh my God, what's Bowie doing? He's killing everything that he's built, you know, with this crazy rock band who sounds totally out of sync with what's going on in the 90s, do you know what I mean? Yes, it was It was his kind of cry for help. But he just didn't mind <laughs> and uh, was it tonight, never, never let me down or something, which was, you know, he needed to do something drastic. So then, you know, as, as the, your timing was perfect really, wasn't it, for what happens next? Because 91, 92, the levelers appeared and then you had the wonder stuff and then you had anthemic kind of guitar stuff. And the next generation, grew their hair and started to go to festivals and play the didgeridoo bizarrely. Mm-hmm. And, um, and <laughs> but there was a sort oh, of- we said didgeridoes. <laughs> <laughs> didgeridoos were suddenly, remember didgeridoos? Everyone wants yeah. um, buskers, everything. But yeah, there was definitely the next generation came along and they, they were definitely gonna get dodgy, weren't they? I think there was a lot more of like a sort of traveler, free thinking individual sort of thing you know it was like and I think that's where I came from I wasn't a traveler but I think I came from you know I grew my hair long I didn't you know I I didn't always wear underwear (laughs) (laughs) you know it was like you know I would eat pasta and I would eat student food in that you know it was and that's who we were and it was like and I think yeah I suppose we came across looking like that you know, and that was who we were because that's 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 what we could afford. Yes, you know I, mean? I would imagine from your <laughs> three three men in a house. I've been there. It's it was messy. There was yeah. no no women. And when yeah, anyway, God, that's a whole other story, isn't it? But, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It was like we didn't. What I thought, God, we didn't. I can't remember ever washing. Yeah, you know, it was. I like, remember that. Do you remember? Do you remember that smell when you leave your washing in the washing machine for a bit too long? Oh God, I remember that. That reminds me of the 90s, that sort of thing. Yeah, there was that sort of thing. But yeah, I suppose we played Glastonbury, I think, in 91. Uh, and it's the first time I'd ever been there. And um, which was, we played at 11 in the morning. But yeah, you got that sense that there was some, we were, I, I think we were more like the audience than most of bands, yes. in a way. You know, I think that, and that shone through a little bit. And I suppose when we went back, in 93 or 94 then then we were playing on a bigger stage and yeah I think we were sort of we did evoke what that was that, that environment at that time you know yeah so. absolutely because because when I was you know sort of that 80s period there was still the hangover of the the Hawkwind the kind of the travelers that you know there was a lot of kind of it was quite a hard the festival scene was quite hard and it was quite sort of unpleasant but then those people had obviously died off or 
just couldn't walk anymore or yeah pretty, mm. you know you can't do that lifestyle for long can you so the the kind of the traveling festy scene in the 90s felt very different you didn't feel quite like god they're going to come at me with a on a motorcycle with a chainsaw no. with lots of dogs called you know tyson or trotsky chaos <laughs> they always called things like that chaos. so yes <laughs> chaos come here Come on, chaos. <laughs> so the 90s definitely was a little bit more fluffy, wasn't it? And a bit more fun. And people weren't just wanting to take lots of acid and just stare at the sky. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and yeah, I, I again, I'd sort of taken a lot of drugs before I'd even got in a band. So I was like sort of, it was, it was, a, there was part of it. Of course it was, you go to a festival and do that. But yeah, it didn't feel like it was, so I don't think drugs are about, about escapism. I think they're a gateway to something, to your creativity possibly, or to, they're not always like that, but I think, you know, there is there is a positivity that you can get out of certain things, certain chemicals. I'm, you know, I'm not gonna try and, you know, say that all drugs are great, they're not, but if you go at it with the right frame of mind, you can definitely get something from certain drugs. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think, and I still believe that now, you know, I still believe, you know, I still, you know, occasionally take drugs, you know, but why wouldn't you say like alcohol, you know, and I occasionally drink, you know. <laughs> I know, cider in the 90s, it was great. But then, yeah, so the first album come along, you're already on a, on a major label. So how did you manage to sort of navigate something as big as A&M? Um, well, we had, the, the whole thing was, it came down to our club, I think. I think the Dodgy Club, well, basically, what happened was, um, there was there's two sort of stories really. So we got, I got, a, I did a demo tape of my on my own of four track and drum machine. Probably I don't know where, if I've still got it. I probably have somewhere uh, a demo tape of uh, uh, about three songs I'd been doing at my home, and I sent it off to Virgin just out of the blue and see what they thought. And the next day, I got a phone call. And they said, we really like your demo. We'd like to come and see your band. And I hadn't even told the guys that I'd done this. So I was like, oh, right, they don't even know this. So I had to say to the guys, look, the Dodgy Club, I sent this demo and they want to come down and see us. And so we had to quickly learn those songs or songs to a similar ilk. And then they came down and said, you're not ready, which was fair enough because we weren't. Um, but I think that started something. I think people started, it just seemed to sort of like go. I mean, weirdly, you know, these days you write something on Twitter and it can go overnight, but this sort of happened. So the next two weeks later when we did the Dodgy Club, there was a, I think there was someone from RCA and someone else from another company. They'd phone up to get on the guest list and we did the door and I'd say there's no guest list. So we were sort of already, you know, those people at Glastonbury, we were talking that we were. We, we didn't want to play the game. So, because I'd already done the Rover, I'd worked in business. I knew how business worked to, my, to, a, to that, a 21-year-old. <laughs> and I just didn't want to let this go to business. And so we tried to be as awkward as possible to the record companies and publishers. So when we had our first publishing deal, um, we couldn't decide between Virgin and BMG, so we invited them to our local pub to play Italian 90, which is a football game against each other. And, you know, by doing something so daft, it got in Music Week. It was on the front page of Music Week in 1990, and this band, Dodgy, made two heads of big publishing companies 
fight over a band for 60 grand. Do you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> but I liked that. And it's not, it's just being maverick. It's just going, let's just do your own thing. You've got to know your own mind. And we did the same with the record company as well. So we signed to A&M and made them go all the way to West Wales. And we weren't even there. <laughs> <laughs> we arrived about three hours later. But it was just, it was just fun, you know. And then we got a record deal and, I don't think they wanted anything. I don't know, it was weird. I think they, they were quite frightened of us in a way. Because, but we had it all. We had the good songs, but they didn't really have to do anything. So we never got A&R'd by anybody. They just said, who do you want to work with? And we went, mm, I don't know, what do we have to work with someone? Can't we do it on <laughs> our own? And um, they said no. So we, were like, we watched a chart show and I was like going, who do I want to work with here? And I saw Ian Brody, and I think he was playing Pure. And I was like, yeah. He'll be all right. He's quite poppy. So that was how it started, really, with Ian, you know. So, no, yeah. He, he was, he, he's a kind of a pop hit machine, really, isn't he? Because that track, you know, Pure, was just, it was like, um, I don't know, who's that other band? The First Summer of You, The First Summer of something. From oh, yeah, The yeah, Lotus yeah. Eaters. It was that kind of, yeah. God, it was, it was heavy on yeah. the sugar front. It was, it was beautiful. And we were a lot harder than that. But, you know, we got on with him. We went to Liverpool. We did the first album. We did three singles on an independent, which was our own independent, funded by A&M, to help us with the music press. Because at the time, the music press was very much home towards independent artists. Uh, if you were on a major record label, they didn't really look down. They, did, they looked down at you, basically. Because yes. there, there was a band called the Milltown Brothers who were signed to A&M before us. And they tried to break them, but because they were on a major, they just didn't cross over. I think Dodgy were lucky because we had a bit, I don't know, we obviously had more about us than, than a lot of bands at the time, really. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think and so we did that first album and the song that was on it, which was, was a song called Lovebirds, which was the one that got us signed. So, and that was like that, uh, sort of, that was Brody's favourite song. It was a lot of people's favourite song at the time. So that was all anticipated to be a hit. And then when it wasn't, it was really depressing. <laughs> God, that was because um, often things like that can just mean you just don't make it. Because there's been a lot of people I've interviewed where they they just kind of gone. We put the single out and they didn't get it ready. It didn't chart, so they just completely got rid of us. And it was like, and that was it. Your career was yeah. over. And it was like, basically, yeah, that was it. They just said, well, no, we're not bothered, you know. And it's like, but it wasn't our fault. It was your fault, you know. How could how could that happen? Yeah. Like, well, it's just a lot of the. I mean, a lot of people I spoke to is, have always mentioned the T word. It's about timing, you know, in music. You know, if you were just there at the right time. And there was a guy called Richard Strange who was in the Doctors of Madness, and he said we were two years too early for punk. But everybody in the audience went on being punk bands, you know, and they copied yeah. us. But we were like. Shit, we're 25, we're a bit too old for this because we've been. Yeah, doing, yeah. You know, so I've heard about them. I've never heard them, but I heard about them. Yeah. Was a film done about them, wasn't there? Or something? Is there a film or something like that? It probably it was... is, because he's such a sort of interesting character. But then you you sort of hit musical, you you hit that moment in your set with the second album, don't you? That's the one that there was, I don't know if this was happening, but I can remember them at the time. There was those shine compilations, weren't there, that came out yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. And suddenly Top of the Pops was flooded with with sort of happy, it was almost like that um, REM song, Happy Shiny People, wasn't it? There was mm -hmm. anthemic songs that made you feel really good. So when mm -hmm. you, you did that first album and it didn't quite go as they hoped, how did you manage to pick yourself up and do the second album? Well, I think because we were working, we, 
I've always been quite sort of prolific on writing and stuff like that. So I, I've got, a st- I'm painting my studio as today. So I've always, I've always had studios. I've always built things, always made songs. I've got hundreds of unfinished songs that I need to finish. But, the, you know, I think with the second album, we were one lucky enough to be able to do it. And then we already had Grassman because Grassman we'd written before the first album. And some of the songs on Homegrown had been written before the first album. So, and Staying Out for the Summer was the last song written for Homegrown. And it was something that was just about what, what, about my life up until then, really, about leaving the factory and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and it was, I know you say about timing. I mean, they released that in bloody October. Do you know what I mean? And it's like someone said the other day, it was 24, 26 years ago this week, they released it. And it was October and I'm like, why did they release that album in October? And Staying Out for the Summer came out in October. But then they re-released it the next year and it became a hit, you know? So it it is weird and it is about time and it's got to be, hasn't it? It's got to be. And then, you know, then we were the band that was playing at Glastonbury and Staying Out for the Summer, which is pretty much a simple song, became the anthem for festival for that year, you know? And it was like, wow. How did that happen? <laughs> I know. Well, it was weird because I think I think ninety two was the year when Carter headlined the main stage, and and you know wow. to this day everybody goes. But it was just that moment, like Pulp, you know, when they stepped out for the Stone Roses, and it was like it was just that moment. You know, they both yeah. probably thought, God, he, he broke his arm, and we got the main stage, and that was it. Yeah, yeah it was. There was it. Did you? I mean, when that sort of all took off, how did you sort of cope? Because obviously, it must have been like being in Vegas, hitting the sort of jackpot, suddenly going, "Limey, it has all rocked up, and we're we're sort of we've done it." Ish. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you know what? I mean, I must admit, we probably were the bus- one of the busiest bands around at the time, so. You didn't, we didn't have time to think about coping or anything. You just did. You just got in the van in the morning, did a gig in the evening, got home if you were able to that night, or if you weren't, you had a hotel, then got in the van the next day. It was a very much a van life thing. A lot of traveling, just a lot of gigs all over the world, all over Europe, anywhere, Japan. And it did, it sort of did take off, but it didn't take off in America, which was, America was the killer and the breaker for all bands. If you didn't make America, and we never even got our records released there. So it was like, we never even got a chance, which was kind of really problematic to me because obviously I'd been to America and traveled around when I was younger and I really wanted to do it. And then we couldn't get our record released there, even though we were on an American record label. And it was just like, so you always want more. <laughs> yes. What I'm saying is, you know, it's never, you know, I, I was like, well, you know, we've got a hit in, in Britain. And I thought Homegrown would have gone down really well in America, but it just never got released. And all the other bands that went over there came back with their tails between their legs and failed. And I was just like, just give me a chance. And it just didn't happen. It was so, it was, that was really hard to swallow, really. Yeah. You know, that you didn't get that full potential from an album. And it never happened on the album, you know, Free Peace Suite either. So, you know, we had a massive platinum selling album in the UK, but it just didn't happen. It didn't happen in America, which was, really difficult to take on the chin really because you knew that there was a market out there and once america's cracked you know you're really you're really up there yeah you well, are, it's, it's 
interesting because having you know been interviewing bands I've often you know when it comes to the breakup and the, the moment it all falls apart there's a few there's a couple of things and it's often when people say we toured America and then we came back and split up <laughs> it's like yeah and I had never sort of realized this before and then they say it's just it just destroyed us we were just finished you know we just couldn't cope and it's such a big place and you're just traveling and you just you got to that point where you know you just thought I can't do this anymore it, it has swallowed us completely so it's interesting think, you you weren't even given that chance to sort of no but we were still really busy and the problem was they were just they were just putting us out in Europe all the time but at that time Europe was following MTV so America was putting lots of bands on MTV and they were becoming massive in Europe and the UK but we were going out to Europe in the tour bus and just touring and, and kind of like starting again what we'd done in the UK, but without the support of MTV. So it was very difficult. I'm not saying that was the whole sole reason, but I do think that took its toll as well. I think, you know, van life, if, you know, we lived together, but I think, I still think that, you know, it became very, very hard. And it does. And even now, you know, after you spend some time with the band, you're like, I can't wait to get home. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I, you know, you really do. You know, it's very difficult. It's, it's yes. you know, it's kind of inhuman. <laughs> it is. It is kind of. So, how did you get on? I know you worked with Ian Brody on that album, but you also worked with the famous Hugh um, Hugh Jones. Hugh Jones. And and he's got an amazing CV. How did you? What was that experience like with him as the producer on that album? Yeah, I really loved Hugh. I mean, it was a funny sort of ending with Ian because Ian just popped up one day and said. I think word for word, he said, there's no more, I'm, I'm not, I'm, what did he say? I'm, this is what he said to me. Uh, he said, um, I'm not going to work on the album anymore. There's not enough arguments. <laughs> 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 and I went, yes, there are. <laughs> and he, but no, he, he just said that. And, I, and basically what he was trying to say was, I've got my own album to do, which was Jollification or one of those albums. So he was just trying to get off. And then he went, uh, and then, this was halfway through State of Homegrown album. And then we met up with Hugh. And no one even told me that Hugh had worked on The Damned and stuff like that. I just didn't. And I really, I, I sort of put, I, I grilled Hugh quite a lot. I said, well, how, can, what, how are you going to make this album better than I can? Uh, you know, in a sort of like, you know, cocky, pretty 24, five-year-old. And he was really amazing. And in fact, I could never make an album like Hugh Jones could. He was the most amazing producer ever, in my opinion, to, to work with. He was wonderful. He put so much effort in, so many hours. He would work 18-hour days. It was amazing. And like you can still hear it now. I'm, when I listen to the records, you can still hear it. They still sound bloody great because he put so much effort in. Yeah. And we used, and we used Wessex Studio, which was where London Calling was recorded. And... It was right near my house. So we, you know, it was, oh no, we didn't use it on that one. We used sawmills on Homegrown, but Free Piece Sweet we did. We yeah. used, no, not, not sawmills, Rockfield, Rockfield, and a few other not, a place in Lincolnshire, the, ch the chapel, I think, and the Ambrody studio. But we, yeah, that one was that one. So, which was, yeah, he's amazing. Hugh Jones was an amazing, and I, I saw Hugh at the start of the year, actually. I went down to see him. And sort of talk to him about doing some recording again. He's retired now, but I think I could still drag him out of retirement. But he wouldn't be working like he used to. No, people have just said, you know, he, he you know, everyone has really good, you know, it's a good story with who. So, you know, and his CV is like, 
Jesus, yeah. how do you put that much into one year? I know, he's amazing. <laughs> he's amazing. Think, yes. And he had a, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if it was him, but someone just said he just seemed to, was it just a beer and a fag? So you only saw him. He's like, yeah. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> he, used to put, he used to put Holston pills on top of the mixing desk because he doesn't like cold beer, so it'd be warm. <laughs> And then just smoke fags, Marlboros, all day. He doesn't smoke anymore, by the way. But he used to smoke about 40 fags all day, just working in the studio. It was amazing to watch, though. It was brilliant. You know, yes. A really good, lot of experience. So then when you were coming through the, the 90s, and obviously, like, you know, I mentioned in the 80s, there was definitely this period where things started to sort of go. Did it, did it feel quite a drag or, or hard work getting three-piece suite together? Um, we didn't do any, so the, 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 the story you'll hear all the time from bands is the first album, they have all their songs ready. The second album, they do a bit of pre-production and get their songs ready. The third album, nothing's written. We did three albums in three years. Yes. So there's, you know, so, um, there's, or four years, because we recorded the first one in 92, released in 93, but then we, we finished, Three Piece Suite was 96. That album, I used to go home because I used to live near, near in Stoke Newington, near the, uh, what was the studio called now? I've forgotten <laughs> where St London Calling was recording. Rock recording. Yeah. Uh, no, it was in London, North London. Uh, was it Wessex? Wessex, thank you. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, I used to go home from Wessex, go back to my house. I've just had a baby. My wife had just had a baby. And so they were in, in bed. I'd go and sit up work on the next song, go into the studio the next day, say, okay, this one's called Jack the Lad. This one's called Good Enough. This one's called If You're Thinking Of Me. This one's called In The Room. This one's called Found You. This one's called Ain't No. And we just did loads of recording. And I was on a roll. I was on an absolute roll. But of course, I'd had all these ideas rolling up. So I was, it's just like now. It's just like, I just like go next, finish that one, next, finish that one. But you have to have, you have to have a, what is it, a deadline or something to go for because it's really difficult to finish things if you haven't got a, a deadline or a finishing yeah. line do you know what i mean yeah. it really is yeah so if you haven't got a publisher if you haven't got a record company it's really difficult you need to have that kind of freak out don't you, you need yeah that so that was so i'd just be going into the studio with these songs and hugh would be there and he'd go play the song nice i'd play him the song and he'd go okay reckon you should record this one on your own with the mic and the guitar, and then we'll just put all the stuff around it. And that's what generally used to happen. So I'd record the song, and then all the guys would just play on top of it. Yes. Did you feel that you were developing as an artist at that stage, or were you just feeling like it was you were fraying at the edges? No, I felt, I felt absolutely amazing. I remember finishing the album. We finished it off somewhere else. And I felt really sad that I had to stop such an amazing creative process. I was just rolling, I was doing B-sides, I was just like, it just it did go on. I mean, it wasn't the ideal way to record an album in some ways because it was, you know, challenging, but I just love the process of just like going home, writing another song, going into the studio and going, proper studio and going, let's do it, come on. You know, and then at the end of the day, you've got a song, you know. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was I, amazing. I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to stop. And I said to everyone, I don't want to stop. But I, would rather, I want to be Brian Wilson and carry on recording and let the band go out, you know. Yes, which is kind of 
I can understand why. I mean, and David Bowie in the 70s did an album a year, produced a couple of albums for E Pop and Lou Reed relocated several times. So it kind of can be done, but it is quite an unusual experience. You must have felt like Superman. <laughs> My dog. Um, do I feel like Superman? I don't, I suppose you do. I suppose you feel like, you know, you feel like you've got a superpower. Um, and I felt like uh, the people around me were enabling me to be a superpower. So that was really good. Um, you know, and, and then it came out and then it was a really big hit and we did loads of gigs. And that, un un unfortunately, that's where it all started to unravel. Yes, these things do. They do. You they must do. know that. <laughs> From all the bands you talk to, they all unravel at some they point. They all unravel, don't they? On the smallest things sometimes. There was one band, I think it was Jesus Jones. I remember them. I think they said, look, we, we got this tour lined up and they said, well, there's a World Cup on. You know, it's like we would rather watch the World Cup than go on tour. And it's like, I think we've had it, haven't we? You know, it was like that moment. And the band, and, and James, there was a, you know, a guy from the guitarist and he said they were sitting around the swimming pool and he said, at the height of their kind of, you know, popularity. And they, he said, why don't we break up? We already hate each other. And they went, oh, thank God someone said it, you know, and that was it, you know, that was the moment. So it does kind of have those kind yeah. of moments, doesn't it? I always, I always like Crass's story of how Crass broke up. It was because they had, they, they argued over a smoking ban at Dial House, which was their commune in, in wherever it was in North Epping Forest. They fell out over a smoking ban in the house. So that was brilliant. <laughs> God, there was another one actually, which was, oh God, I can't remember her name, but she said, because they were a narco punk band and she was like, oh, she had the, she said it was the worst name. It was Hagar the Womb or something. Uh, yeah, okay, I know them. Yeah, Hagar the Womb or whatever. She like said they, she walked out because she wanted it to be the single to be sold or the album to be sold for one ninety nine. They said, oh look, let's have two ninety nine. It's like, fuck it, I'm walking away. No, that's it. That's the end of the band. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. it. And she went, Is oh my spending? God, why did we do that? Why did I do that? What's <laughs> <laughs> the bloody price of the record? I could have just said, let's go halfway. It's like, no. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. Hindsight is such a wonderful thing, especially when you're leaving a band. It was like, yeah. Yes. Totally. So what happened? Um, oh, God. I, th I, I actually think there was, it wasn't, I think what happened was someone pulled the rug away and, you know, we'd been sweeping all these problems under this rug all for, for you know, since 1990 and the rug got pulled away or I look, I decided one day to look under it and go, hey guys, um, you know I write all the songs here? I think the publishing's not really, a ref one of those stories, it's not really reflective of the work that I put in. That was it, can of worms really. It was just like the whole thing was just like, and then when, when people respond to you like, oh, I disagree and it's like, oh, okay, so we have a problem, it was just, you know what? I just had, I just had my family and started a family, and I just thought, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need this. And it was really hard, and it was really difficult, and I felt terrible for ages. Not for, not for them. I didn't feel terrible for them. I just felt terrible, in the sense that like it had ended like that, and I was the one that had to walk away. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. felt really, felt really bad, and I walked away from it. And yeah, you know. Well, yes, but it was interesting because I, I don't know if you remember, there was a band called Blythe Power 
And, yes. Uh, and the drummer, you know, um, Joseph, he's, he's the songwriter and he does it all. And he's, and, and he's kept the band going, but he said his main problem was that he did all the work, but everyone wanted a percentage of the publishing. And he, yeah. in his political way, would try to negotiate all this. He said it took him about 30 years to work out, like, actually, I'm Blythe Power, I do all the work. It's my, but you know, these all my songs, you can't say you wrote that song or you, you know, you didn't come up with yeah. anything. You just literally turned up and played on this record, but I had to do the yeah. business. So he said it took, him, it, 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 it took him decades to sort of one day feel okay to say, look, I'm, I'm that di slight dictator. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? It's really difficult. And it doesn't come naturally because most people who are songwriters are really, well, not all most people, but you'll probably find that they're quite easy going and they're quite, you know, to a point, but there's a point once, once it goes past that point, which it did, and I got the response I did, I just couldn't work with those people again or anymore, you know? Yes, it was, yeah, and, absolutely. Which is like, you know, which, which is quite weird because then it brings me up to this album that I'm releasing in December, Make Believe Love, because that was written and recorded pretty much straight after, after that. So, and it was dealing with the fact that the negativity I felt, so there was no pop songs on it. It was dealing with real life issues, with real things that were affecting me, you know, so funny old times, isn't it? It is a funny. So, God, just to get this right, did the band continue without you then? God, yeah. So that must have felt even weirder. It just, it just, it was just a horrible, horrible experience because I remember being in the last meeting and just like them saying, you know, we want the name. And I'm like, you can fucking have the name. What's the name? And it was just really, it was just, I just felt really, really, I don't know, isolated by it. I still don't like the situation. I, I rarely talk about it because I found that it was, you know, it was quite a toxic thing. I don't feel toxic about it now, but it, it did feel, you know, back in the days before toxic was used as a, <laughs> as a word for toxic friendships. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was really hard. And it was hard to walk away from and then to someone to say, we want the name. And I'm like, and, you know, well, great, carry on. Because with a few bands, and, and funny enough, I mentioned Barclay James Harvest, and they there's two Barclay James Harvest, and I've interviewed <laughs> one of them. And then the other week, I interviewed the guy from the Rubettes. I was really curious because there's three three Rubettes in the world, and no uh, there's his and there's the other other band. And how many hits do they share between them? <laughs> <laughs> I know this is true. I, I only know. I only know one. <laughs> yeah, Sugar Baby got... Love. Sugar Baby I Love. I've even seen that. Yeah, but yeah, so so I think with Barclay James Harvest, he says, right, I'm going to be Barclay James Harvest. I'm John Lee's, and we'll I'm doing my work, and you can you know I'm not doing yours, and he'll say, yeah, I'll do the same. So how does it work with how did it work with Dodgy then? If you were the songwriter, uh, exactly. I think they they got another singer in uh, called Dave, who I know Dave, and he was a songwriter, so, but totally different. So I don't know why they wanted to keep the name in the first place, because it was totally different. So, and it's not some, I think I've listened to the album once, there are, they did an album and I've listened to it once. Uh, it's not my thing really. Again, it's like, it's not poppy enough for me, but you know, I say poppy, it sounds really like I only listen to fucking Shawaddy Waddy or something. It's not, I don't mean it like that. I mean it like, you know, I like a sense of, I don't know, 
colour or something. It just didn't feel anything to me, really. Yes, absolutely. Did you feel a little bit like Roger Walters, you know, thinking that kind of, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I thought, you know, when, when he sort of finished, you know, Pink Floyd, he, when he walked, I think, finished, this is what I think, he thought the band would just go, right, okay, that's the end, but they didn't. He went, oh, wait a minute, you're keeping the band going. And it was, it was kind of, it was a bit different because actually he, he didn't write all the material. I suppose it was a kind of a collaboration and with other people. And I suppose he found that a bit difficult from my take on the, the kind of complexity of Pink Floyd. Whereas you were obviously the songwriter and they were the musicians. So that would have been like the, the other two members of Jimi Hendrix keeping the band going without Jimi Hendrix. And, and calling it Jimi Hendrix experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, quite weird. I mean, I must admit it was quite weird and it was just sort of, it, it, yeah, it, I didn't really think much about it, you know. I, I, I felt that at that point I had no other ways to turn than to turn away and go. I just felt that, like that was it. And yeah, it was really, like I say, it was really difficult. And I did go through um, a difficult time for a few years because I'd built something or I felt like I'd built something up and then I'd have to leave it. Yes. And it was mine, but I felt like it was mine. And, uh, yeah, it stays with you there. That's really hard. I think that, that you know, there, there is a sort of bitterness there, you know, about it, I think. Well, it would be hard that you'd have a lot of therapy to cope with that one, wouldn't you? I would if therapy was around then, but it wasn't really. I don't... It wasn't. So I just got on with my life, really. But but then I think my confidence was was a bit, bit damaged at that time. So I didn't gig. I didn't gig. I, you know, for someone that had done about... The, you know, I don't know how many gigs I did in the 90s, but in the... After that, I didn't gig for about, I think my, I stopped gigging for about six years. Yes. So, and I just went into recording bands and studios and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I didn't gig. So I'd lost all my confidence. I just lost it. I just felt like, you know, I don't know, weird. It was a weird time. And then, you know, I got it back. <laughs> yes. And then when did things, because you started, was it sort of about 10 years later, you started to, come back into the public arena? Um, in 2008, I think we, we did a gig. We sort of like did a gig for, for a, a, our lighting guy, the guy that I mentioned earlier. He unfortunately had a brain tumour and we went to Manchester to do his, he was still alive at the time, and we went to do a sort of a fundraiser for him, Matthew and I. So I met up with Matthew. I hadn't spoke to the guys for 10 years, so we didn't speak. There was nothing to speak about, I felt. Yeah. I felt the same way as they felt about me, probably, you know, that I'd walked out on them and I'd, I felt that they'd let me walk out on them, you know. Um, so, but yeah, we sort of, we, me and Matthew made friends and sort of said, you know, and then slowly it sort of started coming back. And I said, the only reason I'd do it is if we do another album. So, and we've done two now. Yeah. So, yeah, but I'm not sure there'll be another one. I, I'm pretty much doubt there'll be another one with the band you know I think we you know we had that same problem with look we were talking about at the start of the interview that you know the record the last album we did the record company did it so terribly they put it out the you know they didn't put barcodes on it so we just didn't get anything back from it really and it was just a real I worked really hard I mixed and produced it I wrote it and it was just a lot of work for me for nothing you know yeah. and it felt so I just sort of went, mm, I've kind of nailed that one. Yeah. But, you know, we had a good time while it lasted. And also, I mean, there was that documentary about bands reforming. And I remember it was Stuart Copeland from the police saying that um, 
band therapy. He mentioned band therapy because when they started touring again, everyone was having a great time because there was a lot of money involved, apart from him and Sting, who were just having the most miserable time in the world. Did you ever have to have those any of those conversations? That, um, that yeah. Worked? Yeah. Yeah, many. And did that many. did that help the process at all? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it helps, but I don't think the words are forgotten. I think, you know, when, when it's that situation, when it is really difficult and, you know, you, you're, you know, you have to agree to disagree and it's compromise and the words that I hate, I hate compromise. I don't compromise. I find, I don't, do you know what I mean? As an artist, I'm like, it's got to be right. You know, it's got to be, and compromise is always a sort of yes. And yeah, I think we've had many of those chats to get us to this point, you know, definitely. <laughs> and it's, and obviously because it's like, you know, if you put in alcohol and then you put in drugs and you put in tiredness and you put in, you know, all the money and you put in all the other things, then yeah, I mean, that can be a big problem. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. You know? But then often with time, you know, we have a bit of a reflection and other things happen in life and you think, I must just, we can let that go a little bit. As long as you get heard, often it's that thing, can you just hear what I'm saying? Can you hear what I'm saying? And not interrupt and just understand what, what that feels like. That can be quite a relief, but if you get, keep getting interrupted, you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I, think, I think it comes down to the fact that I, I, I read Bruce Springsteen's book last year and I found it, I had it as an audiobook because we were, we were touring a lot last year and I, I like audiobooks when I'm on the road. And there was one thing about Bruce Springsteen's book that really stood out to me, as well as many other things. But he said, um, the E Street Band, I've had this band for 30 odd years, but I look at them and these aren't the people that I would go out and have a, lot, a night out with. They're not his friends, as in, you know, they're, they're not the people that he would hang around with. He looks at them all and goes, they're not the people I'd hang around with. And I get that a little bit. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I get, I understand that. Like, I play music with these people, but I'm not necessarily that enamoured to go and hang out with them. It's a band thing. Do you know what I mean? We don't really have that much in common. It's really, really strange. And it's obviously our lives have gone their own way now. I, I'm, you know, I'm a granddad now. My daughter's had a son. I'm a granddad since March this year. And there's other people in the band who haven't got children, you know? And it's like, there's a big difference. There's a big void of difference. You know, I live in Worcestershire and where I was born and other people live in cities. And, you know, it's like, and I, and I, I'm from honest, so we don't really speak that often, you know? It's quite, it's quite weird. We haven't this year, you know? No, absolutely. Not even, not even. So, well, well, so where are you now kind of creatively? Because you, you say you've got a new single and a new album coming out. Yeah. And so, what... got, so that's, that's an album of like songs I did when I left, after I left Dodgy. And I just, I did it. I recorded it with a band in Birmingham and it took me a year. It really, it was, it was a, a a project I'd been I'd been writing since Three Piece Suite, really, and I'd been writing all these songs, and then I recorded them with a band, and then I sort of just lost all confidence, lost all finances, lost everything, and had to shelve it. And I put it in, I put it on ice, really, and I just and it wasn't until this year when I was starting a new album that I went, 
I need to put it out. So it's called Make Believe Love. The title comes from a Lou Reed quote. So uh, I'm a massive Lou Reed fan. So it came from a Take No Prisoners version on Saint Sweet Jane on Take No Prisoners when he says, they're sitting by their make-believe fire and it's because they've got make-believe love. And he's just spouting out a live gig and, and he goes, that's a great album title. Someone write that down. So I did. So it was <laughs> like make-believe love has always been the title. And I heard that album, God, Midnight, as I suppose. And so, and it became a little bit of a, it became about my life as a dad, my life as a, a human being and somebody who felt like, you know, have no control over things that go on in the world still. So it was kind of like a bit of a sort of, it's quite, a, I don't know, I, I can't, I'm too close to it. Yes. <laughs> and I was too close to it, but I think it's a really interesting album. I, and I listen back to it now and it is totally on the money as to what's going on in this world now. Do you feel like it's a bit like the John Lennon, one of his first solo albums, which featured the word, uh, the song Mother, you know, where it was almost that primal scream of you emotionally just getting stuff out? I think, I think there's part, I think it's part of that. I don't think I've got into the primal scream bit, but I definitely think that, I definitely think that it was cathartic, definitely felt, and, and even this process of going through, you know, getting it out and getting ISRC codes and getting it all that and getting vinyl and, yeah, it's been very cathartic and it feels like I I feel I'm so excited about it coming out. Yeah, I've sat on it for 20 years, you know, weirdly. And so why now? What's what's so special about now? And I don't know, I can't answer it. Maybe it was just this year. But I feel like I'm in a different place. I feel like the world's taken a sort of like a hit and I feel in a different place. And but I feel the same. I feel I, I just feel like I can get things going again you know, get things moving and get this out. Yes, well, it's quite... And did you say... And who are you now playing with, with this project? Oh, that's me on my own. So that's... Right. So I'm... At the, I'm there's the only... So he's coming out in December, and the only pro gigs you can do at the moment are pretty much either solo or duo. So uh, they're all socially distanced gigs in small venues. I mean, it's basically just like, you know, just small acoustic gigs. So I play... I did a lot of lockdown gigs, so I play a lot of mixture of songs from Dodgy's past, and I'll be playing some songs off Make Believe Love and my other solo album, and and cover versions that have influenced me, you know, through the years. Yeah. So it sounds like I'm going to be playing for about four hours. You'll <laughs> <laughs> be like the Grateful Dead in in yeah. sort of Technicolor. And does that mean then with the dates that you've got for next year, is that with Dodgy you're playing with, or is that um, some some gigs are with Dodgy? We won't be doing. I don't. I mean, it's so up in the air now. I mean, even to the point where my agent or the band's agent, both, uh, you know, he's he's doing painting and decorating three days and cleaning, you know, three days a week and doing agency work because there's nothing going on. So there was a, there was a, a reality to this, which means that, you know, the fact is next year, if we're lucky, we will get some gigs, we will get some festivals. But... The idea of like, you know, bands coming from America and different countries could be really problematic with Brexit and with what goes on in this world. I mean, this world has taken a massive turn. So, I mean, yes, we've got plans for Dodgy to do stuff. We were going to do a 25th anniversary of Free Peace Suite, but who knows? I mean, and then the fact is that like, you know, you can put all these things on, but people might still be afraid to go to venues, you know, because of the, you know, COVID. And it's so it's... Yeah, it feels like a real change in, you've got to change, you've got to adapt in the 20th, yes. you know, now you've got to adapt, and I feel like I'm adapting, 
and I'm trying to adapt and bring new things, you know, and that's why Mark, Chris and I are doing this, this songwriting and because it's just three of us and it's all about harmonies, it's all about songs and they bring a song and we help them and vice versa and it feels like, you know, we're all, we're all the similar age and we've all got different, you know, similar backgrounds and stuff like that. So it could be really good and it's something exciting to do. You know, something yes, well, I, I would imagine you, you, you probably have a lot of kind of similar kind of, un, well, stories, but you also probably can just nod and go blimey. I yeah, we've been there. I mean, it's it is quite interesting because I know that being the solo artist is probably going to make you much more nimble to be able to change to things as well as getting booked as well, and that's kind of important. And I remember talking to Hazel O'Connor, who'd had that big hit in the eighties, completely got ripped off, had no money, didn't know what she was going to do, and then sort of reinvented her career as a solo artist, occasionally with a harpist or somebody else, mm -hmm. and um, and just kind of goes out there, does the stuff, and and said that you know she does you know does that thing that afterwards you know you sell your merchandise, but it keeps her going and doing what she loves. And I think a lot of artists sort of realise that's what you've got to do, really. And, and It's been like that, yeah. It has been like that. And it, I think it's been like that for a couple of years. Now, I'm not very good at it, but this is, this is the thing, you know? It's like, if you're going to do a gig, a small gig, and you've got a certain fee, you need to sell merchandise, and they want you to do it. And so you've got to have things. That's probably why my album's coming out in some reason, you know, so I can sell it at gigs. You know, there's all sorts of ways you can, you know, do the, you know, make some sort of money. I mean, it's never much money, but it's, you know, it all helps. But I just love playing live and I do really like playing solo gigs. Yeah. You know, I felt because I didn't like doing solo gigs because I, when I start, I did a solo gig when I first left Dodgy and I hated it because I didn't hear that. I didn't hear just an acoustic guitar and one voice. I hear like, you know, the wrecking crew and harmony, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, and so, but it's taken a few years for me to understand that, you know, there is, there is something else. And it's taken me, basically, it's by listening to people who are solo artists. So I listen to a lot of, uh, you know, I used to listen to a lot of uh, Bert Yanch, uh, finger-picking styles, Nick Drake. So I've listened to a lot of solo acoustic artists. Tom Waits' first album, love it. It was just, you know, you sort of like, okay, I can do this. Yes. I can tell a story with an acoustic guitar. I can tell a story about the song that I'm going to play, you know, and it's like you, you become, yeah, you become a bit more of a storyteller and, yeah, and play the songs that people want to hear. They're where it originated from, you know. That's but how then, it originated. But then, as you mentioned, dear old Bruce, he did his Broadway show, didn't he? One Man of Qatar. And he did it as a performance show with the story, the little chat in between the songs. So did you, having sort of seen, heard, and possibly, you know, you know, watched it, did you think, hmm, Bruce, that's quite a good thing to do? You don't have to argue uh, with Nils Lofgren. I think, yeah, <laughs> I think, I think... It, I wouldn't like to do it to a plan. I wouldn't like to have all my stories worked out beforehand. I think they should be things that, you know, I try and work my set out in a way that like, I go from the first song that, you know, we, we wrote or I wrote, you know, at the start and try and do a little chronology and just like tell a little bit of a story. It might not be the same story every night, you know, oh. it's that sort of thing, I don't, and it might not even have a story. It depends, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, I think when you control things to make things too confined, it could be quite boring or quite, mm, that's not really what you should be doing, Bruce. You know, <laughs> really, I, know, I think that. I think, 
Yeah. Sometimes it can be a little bit contrived, can't it? Yeah, of course. You know, the, the yeah, absolutely. Those jokes that you sometimes hear bands do on stage where you realise, yeah, they must do that every night and he laughs oh, and laughs. And... I know, I know it's terrible. It's terrible. I mean, we tried, when we, I remember playing the St George Roby in, in, in a band before Dodgy and we thought that it was important for the band to jump like Bruce Foxton and Paul Weller at one <laughs> moment. And they, the guitarist and bass player that were in the band didn't like each other, so they would jump at different moments. And it was just like, this is just, I don't even know how I've managed to get this far, because bands are bloody hopeless. <laughs> they really are. I'm lucky. I'm a lucky one. Yes. Well, you know, you didn't end up, you know, doing the Boris the Spider bass player, you know, going, okay, bring us, you know, what have you got on the table? And Bruce, you know, Foxton, you know, his solo work was never going to pay the rent, was yeah. it? No, no, not really. <laughs> you can see why Paul Weller thought, I'm really bored of this. I might just quit the band. It, it, don't know where you really are in the pecking order. <laughs> <laughs> Boris the Spider, John Entwistle, it's a novelty, but, <clears throat> you know, mm. I don't, you know, you might have a B-side, but fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah, don't it's funny, it. isn't it? <laughs> so look, funny all, this, all these decades then, what would you, what would you say to a, an, a, your... 18 year old self which was kind of interesting because uh, the people I've interviewed you you had kind of quite an interesting early teen period mostly people are still you know have quite limited well not stunted growth but are still you know they haven't got a job they haven't got the mortgage they haven't got a wife so it's quite yeah um what would I say to my 18 year old self um god it's I do think it's a minefield. I do think it's like, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be so thick skinned in this business. You know, I, I always think that, I mean, you look at all the superstars, they are so thick skinned, they, nothing will affect them. I mean, especially now, I mean, you know, I used to, I used to dread the thought of putting something out where a journalist could like go, this is terrible. And in the nineties, the journalists were really terrible to some. <laughs> I was quite fortunate. I didn't get the wrath of it all the time, but a lot of people did. And I used to feel terrible for them, you know? Yes. Um, but you've got to know your own mind, haven't you really? And, and it's, it's really hard. I mean, these days, I mean, I don't see, I mean, I do see a lot of solo artists. I don't see many bands anymore. I don't think, I think economically, it's very hard to put a band together and get three years out of them. Because, you know, the drummer will get a girlfriend and she'll say to the drummer, where, what, what are you doing on Friday? And he's got, I've got a gig in Norwich. And he'll come, she'll come back on Sunday and she'll go, do you get any money? And we get 30, we spit 30 quid. Do you know what I mean? And you can only do that for so long. Yes. And that's the reality of the life and the world we live in now. I think there's a lot more, there's going to be a lot more solo artists who are going to do their stuff. And I, unfortunately, that's what I think is going to happen, you know. Well, it's Which interesting because time, it'll always change. It always comes back around. It will. But Taylor Swift suddenly brought an, <clears throat> an album out. I don't know if you listened to it, but it was a very acoustic one that she recorded in lockdown. <laughs> I can't remember who the guy is, but it was absolutely, it was very like a solo artist and very folksy or acoustic, you know, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. She really adapted very quickly. It's like, forget the big production. You know, this is, this can be yeah. quite quickly. So I can, I can imagine that is going to be the way. And, and as you say, it's, it's um, economically, it's just too difficult. You have to be much more nimble this next 12 months, I think. Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things is, and has been a, a sort of factor in the music industry for a few years is, uh, 
you know, a lot of people who would have come from sort of like my background, you know, pretty much working class, would not even be able to get off that first rung, you know, because of financial, you know, because of there's no dole anymore. There's no way, you know, when I moved to London, I could get housing benefit, go on a dole and become an artist. You know, you can't do that anymore. So it's in London, priced out of London. So, you know, and it's, I, I see it as we just, we were happened in that timing again, isn't it? Timing. We yeah. were just lucky enough to follow our hearts. And I do think, do you know what I do think? My advice to the 18 year old is you're in, you listen to your instinct. Your instinct knows more about the you than you know about it. That's really important. Your instinct is the thing. It's always the way. I don't do things anymore that I don't want to do. I only do what I want to do. And I think that's really important to me. Because if I do something I don't want to do, I don't enjoy it. Yeah. And I hate it. If I do something I want to do, I put 100% into it. So do you feel a bit like a lot of empathy with people like Neil Young, who always did that thing of like, it was like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and he was just like, now I've had enough, I'm doing this, and now I'm going to do that, and now I'm going to do this. Everyone's going, oh my God, Neil, we could make so much money if you just played the game. It's like, oh, fuck, you're not, are you? Yeah, but it, I, I do have empathy for Neil Young, and I agree with him. And I agree that it's not all about money either. It's not, I mean, yeah, people can see, they could have seen that and like gone having Young there, but I, I, I love that about him. I think he's maverick. I mean, he pisses a lot of people off, but I love, that's why I love him. And he still makes great records, even now, and he's in his 70s. Yes, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. And David Bowie, you know, in the height of that moment, bought, I mean, we look at it now, but that low album must have been like, what the hell are you doing, David? You know, it's like you did the Soul album, you've done Diamond Dogs, you've done a dreadful covers album, pinups, we can hope. But, you know, Station to Station, that was a bit way out, but low, it's like, what are you doing? The yeah, side yeah. two's got no lyrics. Yeah, 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 <laughs> it's it, mad, isn't it? It was amazing. And I, I, you know, I really like that. I think that's kind of, uh, yeah, because I think I've got two, I, I've always said that I've probably got another two albums and I've always got them, I've got an acoustic album, which could be a double album, and then I've got an electronic album, because I really like it. I like, I like ambient music, so I like sort of, uh, not necessarily beats, but like just, just electronic ambience making, you know, getting into the uh, ADSR and stuff like that. I have a lot of drum machines and synths, and I like all that sort of stuff. Tape loops. I'm just, I, I like messing around in the studio, and there's nothing more fun than just messing around with stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And as Brian Eno said to Bowie, it's like, do what, whatever, because no one's going to die, you know. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Right, That's what I used to say. They can't sack you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's it, really, isn't it? Well, look, I really hope your dates go well for November. No, oh, thank you. And December, you've got, you've, you're coming to East Anglia, aren't you? Where am I in East Anglia? The Firebug, oh. Bury St Edmunds. Oh, yes, I am. Yeah, of course it is. This is all good. Well, that's Firebug. Isn't Firebug Leicester? And somewhere else in, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm reading. It looks, yeah, no, you're you're at the Hunters Club. What's that like? Is it, you've been there? I don't know. I've only been to the the other venue in Bury, actually. So I have no idea. It's a big, there's a big venue. There's a big theatre there, isn't there, or something? Yeah, but um, anyway, it's going to be nice. It's going to be good. This is the future, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I did say that to my agent that, you know, when he booked, started booking me gigs and they started coming through and I went, I kind of think this is going to how it's going to be for the next year, isn't it? And he went pretty much so, yeah. 
you know so it's hard i know it's going to be hard for people and it's just it's you know it's you know it's shit isn't it but it's like at least we're alive and at least we've we've got our memories of stuff but you know we've got to we've got to get out there and support music really haven't we really in any way we can yeah you know? absolutely it's it's you know? you know, we're at that crossroads aren't we we are yeah and um, I tell you, I mean, people like Glastonbury Festival must be just thinking, God, I hope they get a vaccine because if we, because they can't afford to cancel it another year, I don't think. Otherwise, they're all going to sell the farm. I do know what I am worried about things like that because I do seriously think that bands from America will struggle coming to this country next year for some reason. I don't know whether it be Brexit, whatever happens, you know. But all those agreed fees and bands that are already on the bill. You know, I was good. We were going to go to uh, end, end of the World Festival this year, and it got cancelled, obviously. But there's a lot of good American bands on there, and I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be able to come over. I've just got this fear that it's like going to going to be really difficult for bands to come over. And I'd really like to see the Flaming Lips because I really like their latest album, and you know that'd be nice to see them. But I don't think it's going to happen, really. No, no. Well, look, we'll thank you ever so much for being positive. <laughs> be positive. We are. We're going to be fine. Well, well. It's lovely speaking to you, Dave. Yeah, we'll take care, and um, and I'll I'll send you the link, and then you can always use it in your yeah. platforms. Anyway, thank you. Take thank care. You, Cheers. You take care. Good evening. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is how you end a conversation. So not. Anyway, I love that stumbly bit, so I kept it in. That was me, David Eastor, in conversation with Nigel Clark from Dodgy to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, that's it. Um, if you want to contact me for some strange but interesting reason, make it positive. Don't give me any negative rubbish. Uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Yes, you can. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.